This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. But many of these events, because of climate, are going to become more widespread. You know, the, the, the places that are going to be exposed to intense fire regimes, to more flooding, um, are, are expanding. The hazard exposure is expanding in the frequency of severe events. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe, speaking. As we get into the summer months, it got me thinking about the story of the ant and the grasshopper. And it is really easy to be the grasshopper, right? I mean, we're thinking about going to the beach, doing some surfing maybe if you're in California, uh, heading to the mountains of New York and to the lakes up there, beautiful Adirondacks, you know, going to the to the river, just getting out there and, and just having a good time, right? It's really easy to be the grasshopper. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Phil Burke about community resiliency. And how as emergency managers, we cannot afford to allow our community to be grasshoppers. We need to work hard on getting and keeping our community resilient. However, before we get into the interview, we need to ask just one question. Do you have a profile on forums.emweekly.com? I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity to meet and talk to the leading thought leaders uh, in emergency management, such as Dr. Mike Kemp, uh, one of emergency managers uh, thought leaders. And he has a profile over there at forums.emweekly.com. And join the conversation. Just go over there, you know, start a profile. It doesn't cost anything. Get in there, ask questions, join a profile. And if you uh, are a thought leader of emergency management, I'd love to have you over there and continue that conversation and grow in our great community. I'd like to see you over at forums.emweekly.com. Join now and join the conversation. Let's talk to Phil Burke. Well, hi, and uh, welcome to Ian Weekly. And I'm really excited to be talking to uh, Dr. Philip Burke. And again, this is uh, one of the presenters from Prep Talks. And his talk is really something that's really close to my heart. And it's uh, the land use planning uh, for community resilience. And this is something as a professor in the recovery side that I really talk to my students about using tools such as uh, zoning laws, things like this, take people and make the, the community safer. And there's very, there's many, many different examples of this across the country of where they were able to use these things in not a punitive way in any means, but in a way to uh, make the community safer, land swaps, things like that. So Dr. Burke, welcome to Ian Weekly. And how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So Dr. Burke, tell me a little bit about yourself and then and, and your research that you've done specifically in the planning for community resilience. Okay, well, I teach and do research in the area of uh, urban planning and resilience to hazards and uh, climate uh, effects. And I've been doing this for quite some time, decades. And uh, unfortunately, it's a growth business and I find it becoming more and more important and we're getting more and more attention for what we do. And uh, uh, so it's an exciting time in one sense, but in another sense, it's a perilous time because of the challenges that we face in terms of uh, 
uh, how we design and locate our communities with respect to uh, uh, the growing uh, risks that we face. So Dr. Berg, how did you get into this field of study? It kind of, the planning part found me. I uh, was originally studying uh, watershed hydrology in uh, New England and uh, increasingly was encountering floods and people kept asking, well, would you, uh, I was looking at watersheds and watershed protection, more water quality, water supply, watershed storage, snowpacks, those kinds of things. And, yeah, but people, the flooding kept coming, becoming dramatic at these instances, even in, in New England, in Vermont particularly. And uh, I, I just got, it, it, it drew me into the whole notion that being, instead of keep reacting and keep rebuilding and keep, keep on kind of this never-ending cycle of, downward cycle of uh, 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 disaster risk, disaster risk, risk, why don't we start thinking about anticipating and planning and getting prepared because we know these events are going to come. And uh, that, how can we, when we do experience them, do transformative types of activities, not only to lower the risk to the communities we live in, but also there's, you know, in the dark cloud, there's a silver lining that gives us opportunities to, to make improvements to our community, make them more maybe equitable, improve the housing situation, you know, uh, provide uh, more economic opportunity because we're not building in dangerous locations. Someone, yeah. So as you've been doing the studies and just talking about those things right there of, of really mitigating the issues through specifically floods and things like this regarding land use, you come to the realization that there's the ability, the ability to build sustainability and resilience in with land use modeling. And one of the things that I've noticed, and you're now at at, at, at uh, in Texas, and one of the things I've, I've noticed is in Harvey, they actually built homes in the reservoir uh, after yes. that. Right? So what can we do to ensure that, that this is not happening, or is there a way to, to prevent that as emergency managers? Well, Texas is a tough place in the sense that there's not a lot of history, um, particularly in the counties because there's no land use controls in the counties, they're not allowed to have them. But that doesn't mean they can't plan, they still have plenty of, uh, you don't have to use the regulatory optional ways. Um, there are plenty of other uh, uh, tools out there to guide growth and development. And I think we're seeing a growing interest, we're being asked by increasingly a number of communities, both municipalities and counties, to assist in the planning. And I, I really think that you can't force it on anybody, uh, although Mother Nature may be forcing it on us. Mm-hmm. And uh, these disasters that we're seeing aren't natural. You know, hazard events have been occurring since time, you know, millions of years. It's, it, but it, we're making decisions just like the one you said, of placing where people, uh, a, a development in harm's way. and. Uh, I hope that we're going to see a realization that we just can't engineer our way out of these things because we it, it takes a question of land use and where we build and how we design our communities is increasingly important. So I think I'm seeing a change in Texas. I've only been here four years, but I think it's, you know, 
we make history every day, even though we don't see the progress in any given day, we still can, we still can make change. So you, you kind of alluded to, to this one quote that I like regarding that uh, no disasters are natural. The idea that if there's a, an earthquake in the middle of the desert where there were no buildings, there's really no disaster. It was just a large land movement. But yeah. when you when you add homes into it, that's when it becomes a disaster. And so the idea with using with land use is really kind of the idea of disaster mitigation and removing that the 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 threat. Is that what we're kind of talking about? Well, I mean, I, I think from an engineering perspective, we can remove the threat if we put up uh, if we strengthen the buildings. If it's flooding, if we heighten them in particular, if it's wind or earthquakes, we straighten them more. We build a, 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 a dike or a levee or a seawall, but you're still in a, a dangerous location. And can we always rely on the engineering approach? You know, should we say, well, look, the landscape is telling us certain things and the weather is telling us certain things about where events, extreme, you know, hazard events may occur. Should we not always build in those places? And should we, is it, Particularly if we have a need for major investment, is it the kinds of places that we can get a return on investment, like a downtown mm-hmm. versus a low-density suburban neighborhood? Maybe the downtown where there's jobs and economic opportunity and, and so on, that, that requires a, a, you know an investment. Maybe we just can't pick up and relocate always, although increasingly we're going to be facing that. Right. Um, and I think some cities, uh, there are some good examples of cities making choices. Where should I retreat? Where, you know, uh, where should I avoid altogether? And where are the places that I should be investing in the engineering? So I'm saying it takes a mixed approach. But I think oftentimes we tend to lot, rely on the technological you know, uh, investments and, that can, and we kind of constrain our, our suite or set of uh, uh, tools that we can use to mitigate risk. An example that I can think of is in Santa Rosa, California, where the mm-hmm. fires just went through. The mayor or the city council member, I forget what she is at this point, I'm sorry. She was st- talking about the fact that her house, and she was sitting there learning that her home was at one point in a fire way prior to the Santa Rosa fires. She's talking 60-something years ago. And she thought, oh, that's kind of interesting that they rebuilt here. And the trees are still there and everything is still very beautiful. And then the fires came again and ripped through that entire place that's burnt in the hist- in the past. So we do have history of, of these places that have had these uh, devastating uh, events in the past. And we're still building there. And it seems like in the case of Santa Rosa, it looks like that they're streamlining the permit process so people could build in the exact same place where their house burned down and where the fire was before there again. So we we know they're building hazard zones, you know, and so it just seems to be that what can we do as emergency okay. managers to get our voices heard in this planning process? Well, I think we can educate ourselves to realize that there's, a, there's I think there's a, a an incentive system in place at the national level I know, for example, you know, if you're declared as a presidentially declared disaster, you know, you get public assistance, individual assistance, the public assistance, the vast majority of it's paid for by the federal government, like 90%. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's a subsidy. So it's like a moral hazard. Uh, the, the National Flood Insurance Program, it's billions, tens of billions in the hole and further going to go into the red. It's, you know, it's because it's subsidized insurance. It doesn't, you're not paying the actual actuarial rate. And so we have these kinds of, uh, oftentimes we get large investments from the federal government in levees and dams and uh, to protect cities. So where, where, where's the incentive? It's always not there. There's kind of a disincentive in a way. If we put up a, a levee, we're no longer, even though you're in the 100-year floodplain, you're no longer in the floodplain. Like mm -hmm. You know, so there are these disincentives. Uh, there is also, if I'm a mayor of a city or a city council member, you know, this event going to occur every 20 years, although that windows, uh, the, the intervals, I think, are collapsing because of climate, exacerbating the severity of different events. Right. Uh, uh, you know, what, what's my incentive to, you know, I'll take the chance because nothing's going to happen in my, you know, I'm, I, I run every four years or whatever. So it, there's a lot of, I think, structural conditions that are uh, in terms of the policies that we, um, uh, particularly the policy incentives that are out there that don't, that, that work against proactive planning and looking ahead. And I think that uh, if we, if there are some incentive programs, so working against that at the national level, I think is very, is very important. We have to get some changes. And, you know, we keep going in the hole with federal deficits. I think that's at the national level. Mm -hmm. I think at the local level, there are certain things that we can take advantage of that many communities don't in terms of the, like, for example, the incentive system built into the community rating system under the National Flood Insurance Program. There's a whole incentive structure that, you know, I'll lower my flood insurance premiums if I do certain things, particularly if I take land use actions, uh, buyouts, relocations, that kind of thing, I get big point reductions for the whole community in terms of their flood insurance. I also think that we need to be arguing at the local level that, uh, you know, the 100 year, that many of these events because of climate are going to become more widespread. You know, the, the, the places that are going to be exposed to intense fire regimes, to more flooding, um, are, are expanding. The hazard exposure is expanding in the frequency of severe events. So if we can get a hold of the data that tells us this, and there's plenty of information out there, that you, you know, what was, was the 500-year floodplain is now the 100-year floodplain. Uh, tech, uh, Houston's been arguing that. The, what was maybe, you know, what we could occur in a certain extreme fire event every 50 years may now be 25 years or 20 years. So these things are hurricanes, another example, that there's increasing scientific information that the hazard areas exposed to severe events are going to increase, expand. And uh, so maybe we need to be thinking about flood insurance or, or hazard insurance where people weren't insuring before they should be uh, making that clear to the banks and the mortgage uh, mortgages and so on so anyway our public investments for infrastructure um, roads sewer that kind of thing maybe we should be taking this into account yeah i mean i know that in california it's that's one of the big things that everybody always really 
talks about and, and, and purchases is, is earthquake insurance because uh, we the, the home values that are here are, are way over the uh, the federal you know, limit as far as they're not going to get their homes replaced by the federal at the federal level. So you know, they they kind of have to have insurance in order just to to know that you're going to have a home again after an earthquake. But right, well, I know you got a huge loan. <laughs> right, 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 and that, that's happening. Right, I know in Houston. I know that Craig Fugate is is going around the the country talking about uh, flood insurance and and how things need to change in that due to the fact that a few times it's come close to if not run out of money and and I know that there's some some really push back on, on or push on on that right now as far as changing what what the flood insurance is and and how it works and and really like you said before working on the mitigation aspects of it. Throughout the history, um, there's been a few towns. Uh, I can think of the one in Illinois. can't think of the name of it off the top of my head. And then there's just recently in uh, Chelsea, Iowa, where they moved the entire town over the mm-hmm. town, you know. And you're seeing towns taking that proactive. This was happened in, in 93. There was a big flood over there. And then they had another one. So they, the entire town is moving up out of the floodplain. And they're mm-hmm. changing the, the area that was a floodplain back into either farming or into parks and 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 those type of, uh, of things. And those of us that grew up along rivers, um, I'm from New York, upstate New York, Albany. We had the Hudson River right there. And, and every year during the thaw, we knew that certain portions of, of the Hudson River uh, were going to flood. And so it's something that we can predict. And like you said before, it's something that's not out of the ordinary. Can we do more incentives to make towns like that, make that proactive? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time, and how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jumpstart on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have, so check them out and let them know that you came from EM Weekly. Let's continue the interview. Can we do more incentives to make towns like that, make that proactive uh, decision and move? I think we can. I think that, you know, the National Flood Insurance Program, these repetitive loss areas, some of these areas... uh, we see repetitive loss over and over and over. What is it? Somebody was telling me 1% of all the uh, uh, structures insured by the, by the flood insurance program cost 25% of the damages over the last decade because of the constant repeating of the loss. So over time, you know, there's a, a cost to the community. There's a cost to the state. Um, because you have, there's still a match in terms of, oh, there are costs that go beyond what the federal government um, requires. So I think that, you know, realization of that needs to be increasingly coming into play. 
I also think that, you know, there's huge amounts of social suffering part of the community, particularly for those that can't afford to rebuild and that don't have the resources. So there are wise ways of doing this. And I think I'm thinking of one place particularly that seems to have the whole package in place. The buyouts, I'll, let me, I could tell you about Norfolk, mm -hmm. uh, Virginia. That there, they're, uh, uh, they're, they, you know, the high tides, People, the most well-read book in Norfolk is the uh, 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 tide book because people get them during the lunar tides or whatever, they have to move their cars up to higher levels of elevation. And uh, it's just the stormwater infrastructure is no longer working properly and so on. So what they've done is they said, look, certain parts of our city are really at high risk. Some of those high risk parts don't have, a, are, are loaded, are, are just, are individual homes and can we afford to protect them and keep rebuilding can we afford to actually build you know flood structural flood controls it's very expensive no we can't so we're going to take a long-term approach and we're going to do a gradual retreat we're going to use FEMA buyout money because we get it anyway but instead of you know and then we're going to, and then we're also not going to expand our infrastructure in the dangerous locations. We're not going to expand water, sewer, roads, those kinds of things over time. And we're not going to increase any zoning densities. Now, the downtown in Norfolk and the seaport areas, they're at high risk. They're low elevation and flooding. But we're going to invest there because it's a wise investment in terms of structural flood controls. But we're also have got higher level areas that are higher in elevation in certain parts of the city that could use infill. And there's open spaces, vacancies. We can raise the densities. We can put, and we can create vibrant, livable neighborhoods. We're a growing city. So we're going to open up. We're going to expand the infrastructure. We're going to put incentives in for tax abatement and these kinds of things for more development. We're also going to provide help with, uh, low interest loans, those kinds of things, in terms of the relocation, in terms of some houses in the high risk areas cannot you know, afford, some households cannot you know, totally afford, even with a FEMA buyout money. Hmm. So they're kind of looking, they're using a whole suite of tools. And there are other good examples out there, like the town you mentioned, there are places that are completely relocated, but it's sort of like, why, why do you need to get into that position? Why do we need to keep growing in these dangerous locations that are going to experience repetitive loss? Even if you're elevating, you've still got streets and sewer, and you've still got paving, like along a river, and that paving is going to cause more runoff downstream. Can we? You're still putting. Um, I could get into our research a little bit on on kind of how communities think about silos. Please do. Yeah. We've done a major research project, two major research projects. One is where we looked at a couple of hundred uh, local governments and we looked at their hazard mitigation plans. And we found that mitigation planning is siloed. It's kind of socially isolated from other, other uh, ur urban sectors like housing, transportation, water, sewer, parks, recreation, that do planning within those sectors and guide and, and, and the process of urbanization 
occurs because you have all of these different sectors, you know, uh, unfolding uh, uh, opportunities for development or allowing. But the hazard mitigation is not part of that. And uh, so what we see is like affordable housing plans that mm -hmm. HUD require, the HUD Federal Housing and Urban Development, or DOT, US DOT, transportation plans um, that ignore hazard mitigation. I've seen after, right after Hurricane Sandy, a hazard mitigation plan and the comprehensive plans for cities, a hazard mitigation plan will say, identify a zone, say this is loss, okay, a loss area. A repetitive loss qualifies for FEMA repetitive loss funding for buyouts. Same exact area, I'll see the comprehensive plan or the transportation plan say, expand infrastructure, raise the densities, do mixed use, do smart growth in dumb locations. Same place, same area. And many communities before Sandy were doing this. Why is this disjointed, you know, um, affordable housing in a 100-year floodplain? Um, so I can get affordable housing firms from HUD. I need to create a, what's called a consolidated plan and so on. So mitigation is isolated. And so what we need to do is be able to weave mitigation in to the way we think about urbanization and development in hazardous areas. And uh, right now we're, we're too isolated and we're just not taking that holistic approach. And so we have a, what we've done is uh, we have another research project that said, hmm, how can we better integrate? So we've come up with a tool it won an award in the Research Avenue, and I want to thank the Department of Homeland Security, Office of University Research, for supporting this over the years, where we've come up with a, a, an award-winning for our research that was given the best article of the year award by the, the academic arm of the American Planning Association. But more important, so we're proud of that. We advance ourselves as academics. But more importantly, we worked hard on creating a plan integration for resilient scorecard where we could get communities to look at and actually score different geographic areas, neighborhoods, downtowns, that kind of thing, within the community and look at the different plans and the different policies and different kinds of development tools that communities are using. And actually are those policies uh, using those tools increasing vulnerability or decreasing vulnerability? Are they raising density? Are they calling for expanded infrastructure? Or, and if they are, is there anything about mitigation? How are we gonna mitigate the risk? And we uh, try to get this kind of, these different plans, even the smallest local governments, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, will have three or four plans in place. Largely, many of them come from the federal government mandates. Uh, some are internally driven in, generated by the community, others are mandated by the state. Many states require comprehensive plans, for example. Every state, every community has to have a hazard mitigation plan required by FEMA, but it's isolated. It isn't weaving in mitigation into these other sectors of, of how we guide growth and development. So the tool will help communities think through, uh, oh, there's a, there's a conflict here in this area, or there is an opportunity to uh, better integrate the way we think of and coordinate the different plans. And uh, 
It's so we try to get the communities to self-evaluate. We don't do it as experts, but the tool can be used by communities to self-evaluate. And that's what we did with Norfolk. I was telling you before about the Norfolk case study. We worked with them closely for over a year while they self-evaluated their network of plans. The planning department had never looked at the hazard mitigation plan when they did their comprehensive plan. <laughs> okay. And they had a they were an award-winning city because they received a Rockefeller Resilient Community, the Rockefeller yeah, Resilient Community, Resilient City Award. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did a resilience plan and had a strategy and so on, but they never kind of up until they used the scorecard, they hadn't kind of integrated it in. So uh, they have a wonderful team there, the emergency manager, the planners, public works and so on, work together. We were working with them for a period of a year and they they now have a, I think a, a comprehensive integrated mitigation approach to dealing with the growing risks, the sea levels and the hurricanes and the flooding that they're dealing with. And they've just completed a unified development ordinance hmm. and to be consistent with, the, with the, the, plan, the integrated network of plans that they have. So they're putting teeth into the plans. That's and awesome. we're about ready to start this with Nashua, New Hampshire. We're working in a couple of communities here in Texas in the recovery and uh, in, uh, from uh, uh, Hurricane uh, Harvey. Harvey, yeah. Well, how could I forget? I've mentally blocked it out. It's such a frustrating. Yeah. It's, it's drained us. We're, we're walking around tired, but uh, we, we, I won't complain because the folks down there are suffering. Right. And now we should be doing the planning before the real rebuilding really kicks on. Some of the rebuildings already happened. But to get a coordinated buyout effort, I'm thinking of Norfolk, but I explained to get a, 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 a long-term proactive view. Even though they're in a recovery mode, they still could be looking proactively because they're getting resources infused right. you know, into the way they rebuild. It's, a, it's an opportunity to be transformational, to build back better. What does sustainability mean to you? Sustainability? I think it... Ooh. <laughs> I think it's about accounting for multiple values, environmental, economic. We have improved environment, stronger economy, and then equity. Who benefits by that? That's a holistic way from an urban planning standpoint when we manage growth and change of the human settlement patterns. Are we getting, you know, ecologically, um, a healthy place that um, uses the services that environment, water, air, so on, and their services that provide that, keep that clean, um, buffers on, around streams, to, uh, uh, keeping soils together with rich networks of, of biodiverse plant systems and so on. So. Uh, but are we, and then recognizing that and also investing in our economy and recognizing in the sense that we're talking about risk here, that the landscape offers us services, eco services to move the floodwaters out, to store them, to, and so on, um, or, or uh, provide more fire, fire resilient um, areas. 
And, uh, and then who gets the benefit by making these improvements? So I mean, in a way that's sustainability, but sustainability won't happen unless you think of resilience. Resilience is dealing with the risk and the growing threats and the uncertainty. You know, we, you know, we have to plan ahead, look ahead. We have to be able to adapt. You know, um, it's just not one one predicted plan. We have to look at multiple futures and be ready to be flexible and adapt. We have to have better science because we have to have to monitor. And we really have to pay attention to the science. Are we are we actually lowering the risk? Are we monitoring the the, the, the risk? And, you know, I could go on, but you're asking a professor. <laughs> no, it's perfect. And and I was going to follow up with with resilience, and you and you and you took it. So that was that was great. Okay, so just a couple more questions left. And so for those that are interested in getting in touch with you, maybe getting in contact with using that tool um, and, and what your research is doing, how can they find you? Yeah, well, we have, a two, we have a website. It's called One Word, Mitigation Guide. The two words are mitigation and guide. If you type those in, as one word, dot org, O-R-G. And what you'll see there are... Two uh, sets of studies, and what you won't see is a, there's some research cited in there, but you're going to see practical tools from the 190 local governments we looked at with their hazard mitigation plans. We pulled out best practices, even though the plans are generally not strong and they're isolated. There's still different elements in these different plans, these 180 different plans that are best practice. And so we tried to, from public participation to uh, use of land use uh, strategies to monitoring and the kinds of indicators that communities may be doing for that monitoring resilience um, and so on, not dealing with climate change, social vulnerability. So we have best practices there. That's a whole website on that. There's also on the front page, something called the scorecard, you can click. And then you'll open it up into a guidebook that I was talking about. And it's designed for communities to look at their network of plans and to try to you know, better integrate. And, and it's, a, it's a process for self-evaluating. Interested communities can contact us and on a limited basis, we can work with them. We're working with, uh, in, in Nashua, New Hampshire, they actually looked at the website and said, we're going to write a proposal to the National League of Cities to get a grant so we can improve our planning. We want to build in resilience. And this scorecard we want to use. So unbeknownst to us, they got funded, won the award, and then gave us a call later and said, hey, we got the scorecard. Uh, and we got a funding to use it. So, and, and we're seeing that more and more. And we're getting like the National Institute of Standards and Technology NIST is partnering with us because they have a resilience planning guideline, which is guidebook, which is a fairly well known in the emergency management community. Steve Kaufman is kind of the, 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 the leader of that in NIST. And uh, they want to partner with us, NIST, in terms of integrating our resilience scorecard into uh, the NIST resilience planning guidebook. To help guidebooks designed to help communities build resilience. And say, hey, this is an effective tool to do that. So we're doing that. So and we're 
partnering in other in other communities. But Nashua is our big next push, and Lagrange, Texas, for rebuilding after Hurricane Harvey is another push for doing. So awesome! Yeah. All right. So here comes uh, one of the toughest uh, questions of the day, and I know that uh, you probably be able to handle this one pretty well. What? book do you recommend to somebody who was interested in this field of study? Well, if you're interested in urban planning and, and interested in what I've been talking about, because you can see I frame it that way. The title of the book is Natural Hazard Mitigation, colon, Recasting Disaster Policy and Planning. Awesome. Okay. And then I see this other book that you have here, The Natural Hazard Mitigation yeah, this is the Recaster Disaster Policy and Planning. Now, is that your book, or is that the book that... Uh... The book. The lead author is David Godchuk. He just passed away about a month and a half ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. Iconic individual in the field of city and regional planning and disaster resiliency. And uh, it was a joy to work with him. And I think that book, uh, it's, that book was selected as the, I think, the uh, 100 most important books in the 20th century uh, for the urban planning field. And it was written and completed in 1999, but it tells so much uh, that it's still highly relevant for today. That's a, that's a thank you so much for that, that uh, suggestion for the book. And uh, is there anything else that you'd like to say to emergency managers before we let you go? Let's see. Good luck out there. There's a huge weight societal weight on your shoulders. You have deep admiration from me and my students at Texas A&M, and we're going to keep at it here. We're not going to give up. Thank you so much, Doctor, and I uh, re- really do appreciate your time today. And for those of you that haven't checked out the prep talks, Dr. Brick has a really good uh, prep talk specifically on some of the stuff we spoke about today and also uh, a little bit more. So, Dr. Brick, thank you so much for your time, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. Bye-bye.